0: Hello and welcome to the fifth episode of The Right Podcast. I'm Minahil Khan, your host for today, and I have with me uh, Ms. Madiha Ansari. Madiha Ansari is a Fulbright scholar who works across the development spectrum, and she works particularly with children from Kachi Abadis and uh, children associated with the streets. She is the founder of Cities for Children. Cities for Children does some excellent work uh, with street children, and I'd love to know more about it. And I think our audience would also be very um, keen to know more about the kind of work that you do, um, what Cities for Children is and you know if you could just tell us a bit more about your work, who who you are and uh, your journey over the past few years with Street Children.
1: Um, Thank you so much for having me, Manahil. Um, So uh, I think the journey with Cities for Children started when I started working with these with uh, a great network of um, open-air non-formal schools catering to street-connected children. Um, and it really helped to understand, um, this was called the Bailey Cairn School System, and um, it really helped to understand the challenges um, that um, children and families associated with the streets face. Um, it, was, it was a bit of a deep dive um, when it comes to kind of Really understanding why it is that children are on the streets, or why it is that the choice between going to work and going to school is really not a straightforward one for, for a lot of families. Um, so, building on that, um, I studied some things that, <laughs> that, um, um, that were related to this as well, and really sort of stepped back to try and articulate. Um, what the niche could be um, when it comes to supporting street connected children. Um, And um, I did sort of, I I did my my research around um, what a useful education could look like for um, children specifically from displaced uh, communities in Pakistan. And um, again, building on that, Cities for Children was set up to protect what is framed as the right to a childhood. Um, So the right to read, to play, and to feel safe. Um, These are simply articulated, but are grounded quite strongly in the Convention on the Rights of the Child. Um, And the work that we do is largely around supporting organizations that work with street children or street connected children um, to build programs Around learning as well as well-being.
0: Um. This is this is really interesting. Um, and I'm I'm assuming that there's a lot of work that that needs to be done in this regard because especially with children connected to the streets, like street connected children, we see that they kind of fall within the cracks. And there are lots of development policies that come out of the state as well, but they don't really cater to street children. Um so it's it's good to see that there's an organization that works directly with these children. Um I, I was doing a bit of research, and we, I saw that there are about there are three different streams in which you work, um, the, the um and there there are two others as well. So if you could just explain what those are and what um you know how they came about.
1: Sure. So each of the each of the streams is related to the the three um, strands of work um, that I mentioned, so the right to read to play, and to feel safe. And each of these strands is pretty interconnected. Each reinforces each other because happy children learn better um, and well-adjusted children learn better and are more likely uh, to stay in school. Um, and also we do try and, and put in learning objectives when it comes to our play programs. Um, so I'll start with play because it's my favorite. Um, and uh, again, you know, play is a right. Um and it's it's often seen as a luxury and it isn't isn't a priority, but there's a lot of evidence to show that play uh, for young children um has a huge role to play in terms of uh developing social emotional skills, in terms of even developing sort of in terms of brain development. Mm. Um and so some of the programs that we do are called Hasti Basti programs. Um and uh through this, we work with universities, train up uh, cohorts of university volunteers to go and deliver these sessions um, that are designed to build social emotional skills in playful ways. Um, so um, we have, um, you know, we do some things with crafts, some things with toys, but each session sort of builds off of each other. Um, so that it's not a one-off ad hoc activity, but there's, it's intentional and there's, there's uh, impact uh, at the end of it. The Sikho uh program evolved out of the COVID-19 pandemic, really, um, because uh, when schools were closed and when sort of, you know, this whole, when education suffered this huge shock as well. Um, some of the kids who didn't have access to digital options uh, were these children from, from, from communities um, that yeah. we worked with. And um, we wanted to find ways just to keep them learning uh, through the pandemic and just make sure that even if um, that, that, that that connection wasn't lost, um, yeah. especially because these are kids who are at high risk of dropout already. Um, already, yes. So um, through this program, what we do is that we work to train uh, bare sathi. Um, we work very closely through partners um, to train uh, bare sathi, who are older children, grades four, five, six, to be teaching chote sathi and be trained learning sessions to chote sathi within their communities in safe bubbles and uh, within their neighborhood so it could just be you know kids they, it's mostly kids they interact with anyway um yeah. was lockdown doesn't look like it it can in those in those settlements um and um what we saw was that you know i think um apart from being you know Trained to follow COVID nineteen SOPs when when they went back into their schools and classes, they were washing their hands um, first thing. Um, the teachers didn't have to kind of push that, but also there were sort of it was a very beautiful bond um, that was created between the bade and chote sathi. And there was a lot of there was a lot that the bade Sati got out of it as well, um, mm. in terms of leadership, responsibility, and feeling that they could do it um so so um that's been that's been sort of something that we really loved doing um and then in under the safety strand we 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 work to reinforce positive mental health um and uh, this has included some workshops with teachers especially around managing behavioral difficulties and learning difficulties but also um if 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 it's okay to show later on maybe or or now um we did a little Animation around uh, positive caregiving um, yeah. because so many protection issues came up during COVID-19. Hmm. Uh, so we did a le- little animation called Maa Nahi Pia. We made a resource uh, in English and Urdu, um, and it so happened that it was launched around the time that um, anti-corporal punishment legislation was being was go- was being passed and uh, pushed um, in the capital. Um, so those those tied together quite nicely because. Legislation is hugely important. Um, and so are the very practical strategies um, and, that, and tools that people can have in place of corporal punishment. Um, yeah. We'd love
0: to see this uh, animation. I, if you want to share your screen, perhaps you could, and we could play this right now. Or if you want to do it later, however, suits you better.
1: Great. Um, so it's a very simple animation, but each frame has a lot of thought behind it, <laughs> so I'll, I'll maybe sort of talk through things a little bit. Oh. It's small, um, but it's a conversation starter, essentially. Yeah. Um, and uh, the resource associated with, with, associated with it has sort of very, um, very practical strategies for parents and um, and easy ones. Um, because a lot of the time, when we had this conversation with teachers, for example, their response was, but then what? You no, know, if yeah. then then what is the alternative? How are kids going to listen? And again, there's a lot of evidence and research to say that love makes a difference. <laughs> it matters. Um and um, there are ways.
0: And but I think, yeah, sorry to cut to you, but I think it will require so much unlearning on so many levels, because I think for so many generations now, it's the only way of disciplining children is by hitting them. So, um, and, and this is something which comes very natural. I mean, it's one of those natural reactions that you have. And it's literally every time, you know, your child. Even, I mean, you know, as a mother, I can say this, that, you know, when my child is driving me crazy, I I have a toddler. So there's a, there there comes a time where I'm like, okay, I really want to (laughs) spank him, but it takes everything. And I have to completely like unlearn so many of the things that I, because I'm like, okay, this is the only way to deal with it. But then all the research that I've done over the past years, I have to go back to that. And really tell myself, so it's a conversation that you need to have. It's it's an actual jihad at that time to really get yourself not to react um, in a manner which is then, as research indicates, detrimental to a child and will not really make any difference in their behavior. If anything, it's only going to, um, you know, cement that kind of behavior.
1: So um, you're, you're so right. And I think so. You know the, that moment when the mom enters, and there's a pause, and it goes to her eyes. She's that's that moment where she's that's thinking, that. okay, um, there's, there's two directions that I could go in right now. Um, but um, but I think it's just about having that moment. You know, it's just just yeah. mindfully, just consciously saying, I'm gonna pause, take that breath. There's two directions that I can go in, and um, also that moment where where you know, the, the different consequences are, are sort of in clouds around the child. Yeah. Um, I think it's um, just the idea that uh, violent punishment can just have uh, just such a negative effect on a child's self-esteem, on their future behavior. It's linked to uh, violence in future uh, per- as with, with sort of that individual as the perpetrator. It's a cycle that yeah. doesn't end um and for a lot of kids uh, i don't know if you saw the little running legs on the side uh, yeah. the bubble but for kids who run away from home violence in the home is often a big reason um and it's so traumatic
0: for children to have to go through that and um i think when 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 they are Um, subjected to violence at a very young age, that's something that they learn. And then that's something that they emulate when they're also older. And um, I really think because, you know, children are so helpless in front of their parents, in front of their teachers, um, in front of grandparents. And I think this really kind of takes that helplessness and it really drives them further into, um, you know, into the cycle of violence. And um, so this is this is a great initiative. I mean, in terms of I mean, looking at it from a very personal level, though, I feel that, you know, there's there's so much that needs to be talked about in regard to this, because, as I said, that there's so much unlearning that needs to be done. Because if you see a mother struggling, um, struggling with something like this, you'll also see people around her telling her that, oh, you know, you're not disciplining your child. If you're not hitting your child, you're not disciplining them. Um, and this is this is the same for teachers as well. It's like okay, if you are not taking, if you are not hitting your student, you're not doing a good job disciplining them, and um, and that you're spoiling the child. This is usually the narrative around you know when you when you have a stance against uh you know violent punishment. Um, but this is a great this is a great start, and it's so important. And uh, the video is so impactful. It's very short, but it's very impactful. Um so this is this is this is great. Um and even your other programs and how they've you've adapted them to, to COVID is is pretty remarkable. Um but in relation to that, I've you know, one of the questions that comes up is that how has COVID impacted children who are living in poverty already? Um, considering the fact that, you know, now so many households have been driven into um economic collapse, do you see more children now in streets and out of schools? And um, what, how is the government responding to this? And now that we're seeing that, you know, there's a lot of focus on a human rights based um, approach to responding to this pandemic. Do you see that in Pakistan and especially in relation to street children, considering, you know, so many of our social welfare programs? I mean, you know, we have the SRs program and it's something that's been lauded internationally as well. But then so many of these children are not documented. So how does it reach them? Um, so, you know, if you could just give us a bit of insight on that.
1: So I think that's huge. So, so, the, I mean, in, in a, in a word it doesn't, um, because, um, so, so I think, um, you mentioned the SAS program, it's, it's fantastic. And I think it's, it's, um, just sort of, there's so many great elements to it, including one, pro, one part of it, uh, where, Uh, parents are incentivized to send children to school, especially girls to school. It's a great concept. I think when it comes to street children um, or street connected children, I think one big thing really is um, there is honestly not enough conversation and not enough understanding around who they are. Um, So you see them, you you, you see them on the street Um, and automatically I think the public has a certain kind of perception around them. A big narrative is they are sent there by, you know, some sort of invisible gang or mafia. A lot of the time, you know, sometimes this may be true, um, but I think it's really important to understand the story behind that individual child um, and the many kinds of identities that that child may have. And um, in Pakistan, um, there can be sort of these these different kinds of uh, ethnic identities also um, that play a part. Um, there are some who may be. Well, I'll talk about Islamabad. There are some who may be um, uh, of Afghan origin, and you know that that's a complicated situation. Um, a lot of them have grown up here, but their origin is Afghan, and so th- I think there, there's a lot that they they need to kind of. Uh, the government needs to kind of uh figure out around that as well i think it's 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 yeah. not an easy question no. um then there are kids who may be from families that have been displaced um you know a long time ago now uh by conflict or by by um, floods or by disaster or they may have experienced repeated displacement and uh, which is which is also why their kids education may have been interrupted and and. There's sort of several reasons why those kids might be on the streets. Um, So communities experiencing protracted displacement. And then there are families who might be coming from other provinces, coming from Punjab, rural Punjab, looking for work. And a lot of these communities, as you mentioned, are in extreme urban poverty, made much worse by COVID-19 and with very little guaranteed access to any kinds of rights and services. Um, because, um, as you mentioned, a lot of the time they may not have the proper documentation. Yeah. This puts them at this, this had several layers of vulnerability because then, they're, then there's no protection there. They're sort of vulnerable to, to harassment. They're vulnerable to exploitation. Um, and um a lot of the time, you know, it it, it may be the difficulties that maybe that they may face um may be legal. <laughs> you know. Um so so if they're living in a settlement that that you know that they're living in a house that they're paying rent for but isn't formal, um yeah. then they don't have a legal right to be there. They don't have a legal right to be on that land, and they can be made to move. Now, the, the question then is: um, Are there certain rights that they deserve as humans? Um, and I would argue, yes. <laughs> you know, I think, and there are certain rights that they're that they're sort of guaranteed by the state, um, including the right to education. And I think. The difficult question there is to, to understand who they are, where they're coming from, what the challenges are, and how those rights can be extended. Yeah. Um, uh, so, so then kind of, you know, to design policies and programs to be able to reach um, uh, those kids. And I think um, as far as COVID-19 is concerned, you're, you're right. Um, It's taken a huge toll, especially on families relying on daily wages and and, and daily labor. Um, During lockdown, a large number of families went sort of slid really deep into debt. Um, There have been health problems. There have been, you know, it's been been a hard time for everybody in the world, but really more more so for some. And... Uh, there has been an increase in the number of, of people that you see on the streets. And to be honest, it, that hasn't been taken very well by the public or 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 by by anybody. Um, so I think there's, there's a need to kind of understand where people are coming from and come from a place of empathy. And if we don't want to see children on the streets, then to really um, sort of dig a little deeper um, in order to be able to to reach them and make sure that they have given the support to be in school or wherever else it is that we want them to
0: be. Yeah, no, and and going back to, um, you know, the right to education and their um, access or lack thereof to it. Uh, this is something which is a problem for most, um, you know, not just street children, but in a lot of rural areas also, we see that there are ghost schools, there are schools which are just not operational. And uh, now with COVID-19, I think schools are the ones that have been hardest hit. Children are the ones who've been, um, you know, hit so hard by it. They've been out of schools for almost more than a year now. And um, I mean, those who are rich, who have access to laptops, who have access to multiple laptops, still are able to Education, but many children now, um, even those who who otherwise belong to middle class families but who only had one laptop at home, now do not have access to education. So, this is a serious concern. And I really, um, you know, I wonder what the government is doing in relation to this, what policies are coming out, which kind of ensure that children across the board in Pakistan are given their fundamental right to education, considering this is something that's been added to the constitution now. Um, but uh, at a grassroots level, um, it seems something and, and also because of the pandemic, it just seems something which is not, um, you know, it's it has little implementation on ground. So, um, you know, and, and I think this is a bigger issue when you look at street children. So um what is your take on that in terms of you know what the government should do now?
1: Um, so I think the whole world has struggled, really. I think the whole it's not it's not just Pakistan. I think it's it's the whole world that has struggled with the phenomena of school clos- closures, massive learning losses, um this digital divide. And um there haven't been any great answers yet, uh, apart from the fact that I think a lot of uh, people have now realized that um, the laptop is actually not a substitute for in-person in teaching, even even sort of kids yeah, yeah. privilege. Yes, yeah. um, and um, and for learning, and um, I think we're going to have to sort of. Be innovative. I think the DSS incentives are a great are a great start um, because, again, you know, in terms of that that difficult choice for families who are experiencing financial trouble, um, it helps um, to be able to um, to be able to send kids to school. Um, but I think there's a lot of catching up to do, um, and uh, I think there's there's a lot of um, teachers who who deserve to be consulted around this. Um, And I think one thing that I I will say is that um, sort of going back to school, um, it's okay to, we we had a conversation around this earlier and I think it was, um, um, there's so much emphasis on on catching up and on exams and on kind of, uh, you know, sort of, hitting those same benchmarks. Um, But this is not the world that we were living in in 2019 um, anymore. And so we can't really have the same benchmarks. Um, So I think there's there's a need to kind of think about that and review that a little bit. Um, And also to be able to give kids the support that they need when they're coming back into schools Um, and, and, you know, after this year of fear, after this year of chaos, when they're coming back into schools, I think for the next year, it's okay to to, in the ideal world, we would be able to um, incorporate an element of teacher training that would um, enable them to give kids that better sort of, um, that reassurance and that sort of, just ease the transition back into education and into schooling and say, okay, you know, we're here, we're here for you. Um, yeah. um and uh, and to be able to understand that, you know, it will be at different levels coming back.
0: Yeah. And I think And I think a fundamental part of that would also be to include children in 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 making these policies as well. Um I think consulting them is also so important because when you're making decisions in their best interests, as per um the CRC, that it's so important that they should also have a say in it. And this is something that's generally, I think, um, I don't know if it's a cultural, I could say, you could say it's a cultural thing, a societal thing here that we don't really, um, we don't talk to our children. We don't ask them, what would you like or what do you want? We consider it, again, a sign of a child that's very spoiled or parents who are spoiling or like, you know, a, a culture that's spoiling their children if they, are, if they ask their children what it is that they want. But I think this is such an important, um, that is such a fundamental component that's missing in our policy making, which especially in relation to children. Absolutely, and I think
1: also um, it's it's a right. Again, you know, Article Twelve says that children have a right to be heard in uh, matters concerning them. But um, also, I think it just makes sense because um, if you're if you're making policies for someone, if you're making policies for a street-connected child, um, then you need to know uh, where that child is coming from, really. Um, and it's not just about what you want, but how can we support you? I think that question is really important to have with children with their families. How is it that we can help support you to to kind of get to the stage or or you know um and I think that will open up a lot of answers. Yeah. Um, and I think the way we view
0: um you know especially street connected children is very one dimensional, and it's only when you talk to them and when you consult them that you realize that there's so many different aspects that that you know, within that within that community, there's some different communities as well with different experiences, different needs. And um, do you think that our policies right now cater to those different needs?
1: Well, I think, um, um, I think complexity is something that is difficult to manage. And um, I think you know we we mentioned this before as well that. Uh, there is a lack of understanding in when it comes to the complexity of those identities and of those situations. Um, it's not easy. It's not easy to open up that conversation. And a lot of the times when you do open up that conversation, you know, like it'll be met with a shrug because, you know, yeah. nothing's going to happen. Um, yeah. Or, or uh, you know, kids who have been on the streets, they've had certain experiences, they're independent, they're um a lot of the time it's they're difficult to, to manage and difficult to deal with. And it will take, you know, certain kinds, a certain, it will take hard work <laughs> to be able yeah. to um, uh, sort of uh, work with them even. Um, yeah. And there are organizations have, that have been doing it over a number of years. And I think they should be consulted um, and brought on board. Um, and also I think, you um, I would say this, that um, the approach that is often taken towards towards street children is either as victims or as delinquents. Um, you know, so I think um, the shift towards viewing them as rights holders is going to take that whole kind of shift in perspective. And, and, and um, you know, instead of, instead of saying, okay, you know, like they're definitely from a criminal background, we that's or or you know we criminalize them we criminalize their parents. Um, that's not a long-term solution um, to the actual issues of you know sort of intergenerational poverty and um, um, also um, I think just just it need there's a, there's just there's a shift in perspective and in narrative that is needed. Yeah. Um, in Pakistan to be able to address, to be able to make policies that will will kind of uh, deal with the different kinds of uh, demographics and also the, the different kinds of uh, needs, really, of, of these populations. Yeah.
0: So so in relation to that, um, there's General Common 21, which talks about a rights-based approach towards C street children. Um, so could you just explain what that is, what it really means and, you know, what what it, what it would be like for a country like Pakistan, um, you know, considering, as you said, you know, we're very far from that right now. So it will require, um, of course, a lot of change in the way we think you know, in our policymaking. Um, so yeah, if you could just shed some light on that.
1: Well, I mean, I think a lot of it is is exactly what, what we've been talking about, that there are some rights that children deserve, Um, no matter who they are, uh, no no matter what kind of settlement they're coming from, there are some things that they are entitled to. Um, That includes the right to education. Um, Now, how it is that we give them that right, I think that's something to figure out. Um, How it is that we make that path easier for them. How it is that we help them to get registered um, or or give them the sort of. incentive to get registered or for communities that want to be invisible because they're scared of being registered. How do we deal with that? Um, And I think um, so the UN general comment number 21 um, on children in street situations looks at kids um, as rights holders and also kind of pushes governments to think about um, Removing the the barriers that they may face, and 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 the, the sort of even laws that might discriminate against them, and that includes things like uh, vagrancy laws um, that kind of criminalize uh, children for being in the situation where where they may be begging or they may be sort of on the street doing economic activities for survival, um, and and just sort of on the basis of that. Uh, they are actually, um, it's it's legally okay to criminalize them. <laughs> um, so, so that in itself um, may be seen as a discriminatory law. Yeah. Um, sorry, you were going to say something? Yeah. So no,
0: I mean, just just speaking of our vagrancy laws. Um, they're discriminatory, and uh, it's also. I think it just it takes the children away from their parents and from something that they're that they're associated with, and for economic activity that they're really pushed into, they don't really have a choice in all of this. But does, do we have protocols in place which ensure? Um, The best interests of the child um a rights-based approach when we are taking those children away from their parents or when you know the law enforcement agents are um dealing with those children do you think that there is enough um sensitization regarding uh the rights of children especially in relation to you know when you when you see them begging and when you're picking them up for that
1: there needs to be more. Um, I mean, I think there, th- that definitely needs to be uh, an urgent conversation um, and there needs to be more training, more sensitization, more um, more around what will happen to those kids um, in, in now and in the long term. Um, is there enough consultation? consultation of the children and their families um, in terms of what happens to them? Um, by criminalizing them or their parents, are we actually putting them in a situation where they're going to sort of slide further into uh, financial trouble? Um, you know, because a breadwinner is out of the picture. Um, and you know, what is it that we can actually do to to deal with the issue? Um, if it really is true that there, you know, there are sort of you know uh, uh, criminal uh, networks behind this then how is it that those networks can be uh, sort of dismantled? Um, And if it is that these kids are being exploited, then how can we remove the situation where they're vulnerable to exploitation? I think these are really important questions. Um, And also just the question of what happens when they're taken into custody, uh, how they are dealt with, all of that is really important because Kids are impressionable. Uh, the experiences they have are going to define the rest of their lives and the path that they take. Um, and especially if 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 the children themselves have a criminal record, um, that's going to be there for life. Um, yeah. and- no, and I think in Pakistan, in addition to you know
0: uh, the kind of um, the, the the impact of being juvenile um, offenders. In addition to that, the problem is that we don't really have the infrastructural, um, we don't have the infrastructure to ensure that children are safe when they are in, you know, custody or, um, you know, because we talk about separate, like a separate cell for children, we talk about separate, um, you know, courts for children, but we don't really have that in practice. So, you know, just them coming into close contact with um, adults is an issue. And uh, then also the fact that is it really in the best interests of the child to take them away from their parents? Because the idea is, and the way we view street children is that their parents are using them, and these are children who are not very, who are not attached to their parents, and who um, want to be emancipated from them. But is that really true? And in your interaction with street children, how do you think? I mean, what is your opinion on this? That do children really want to be, um, you know, independent of their parents, or is that something that really does impact them and impact their development?
1: Um, I mean, I think I will absolutely fight against this idea that just because a mother is poor and uh, has several children, she doesn't love them. I I will just, you know, it just, I can't, this doesn't compute. (laughs) Um, And it's not fair. Uh, It's not a fair characterization of that parent. Um, And... At the same time, I will say that a lot of children do experience, you know, neglect in the home, even abuse in the home, uh, poverty is a reality um, and violence is often a reality. And if that is true, and we are really saying that we want to protect these children and set up a child protection system, I think in a lot of places, um, that is an effort that is underway um, and is commendable. That, but I think the the... The important thing is still to do the hard work to find out what's really going on, and yeah. um, and to be able to say that you know these are children that need to be in in, in a protection uh, facility uh, until the time that we can work with the family and work with the parents to be able to uh, bring them back, and to be able to reunite them, and
0: and and you know sort of. But are we committed enough to do that? I I don't know if we are Um, I think we can be (laughs) I mean we should be and I think you know that is the goal that we should aspire to reach but my I mean I really do think that because we have such a one dimensional approach towards street children that I really don't think You know, there's that effort to look into every individual family and the complexities of that family. And which is why this issue is so, um, you know, this is such a sensitive issue because there are those who are being exploited within their homes. But then there are also those who derive comfort from their homes. So you can't have a one, um, you know, you can't have one rule for all of them. Um, And I think, you know, this is just something that's really lacking in the system as we see it right now.
1: Um, And I, yeah yeah and and i think also it's important to think about this you know if if they are going into protection centers for how long um how you can't how many and for how long because the scale and the deep rooted nature of the issue are not going to change until that hard work is done and until that commitment is made to work with children and their families and even with these protection
0: centers um i really wonder because that are the people running these centers, the people working in these centers, sensitized towards the issues relating to children, um, you know, because there are still instances of abuse exploitation within protection centers as well. Um, these centers are understaffed. Um, they, as I said earlier, you know, they, they lack an in infrastructure. Um, the, the, the people working there are not fully trained. So this is obviously an issue for children as well. So I think this requires like a... I mean, you know, this requires a lot of commitment from the state to ensure that, you know, at every step, children are protected. Um, and the way we look at uh, street children is something that needs to be changed fundamentally. Um, and in this regard, I think it was, I mean, you know, it was heartening to see that uh, the Minister of Human Rights also commented on it on um, the 12th of April, which is the international Day for street children, and um, you know she reiterated the commitment to ensuring their access to basic rights such as health, education, um, social protection. But having said that, and it's commendable that this came from the government. But what do you think is happening on ground? Um, is this commitment does the, is this commitment reflected in our laws and policies?
1: I think there's an effort being made, and I think there's a it's a point where. Um, there's a lot of potential to figure out what to do with the child protection mechanisms and how it is that those processes are going to be implemented for the next um, few years because I, the, the the legislation is at different stages um, in different provinces. Um, and uh, I think there were, in that conversation, um, where the minister sort of uh, uh, made the statement, um, there were a lot of people who were... Are keen to push for change. It was hosted by this um, uh, MNA uh, Ms Menazak Um Historically, there's been um, coordination between between her and between government across sort of key lines to bring about legislation against corporal punishment. It is possible again. You know, I think it is possible to come together on issues that everybody can agree on, um, you know, everybody can agree are important. And I think if one child is going through a traumatic experience, that's one child too many. Um, and we, 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 need to, we need to kind of figure out what it is, how it is that we, we can put those mechanisms in place um, to better protect them. Um, and, and and that traumatic experience should most certainly not be uh, coming from, uh, you know, especially authorities that are there to protect them. Yeah. No, but um, no, I, I, I
0: really think that, you know, you're, you're absolutely right uh, on this. And I think with as long as there's momentum on this internationally within Pakistan and there's some, you know, there's. Some sort of, um, you know, if, if we're answerable, if the state is answerable um, and there is like an initi- there are initiatives like yours, I really think that, you know, slowly this is going to be something that we can improve upon. Um, and I really, because I really do think that, you know, street children at the end of the day are very vulnerable. Um, we call them resilient, but I think resilience is the only choice that they have, unfortunately, in Pakistan. And I really think that, you know, we need to... S- We need to rethink how we view them um, and we need to rethink how we look at issues relating to them, Um, you know, whether that's them begging on the streets, how we look at their relationship with their families. And of course, this needs to come from the state. So it's good to see that, you know, there is momentum on this. And, um, you know, we look forward to the legislation that will come through in relation to, uh, the rights of children and the rights of street children, especially. And, um, you know, I think it's, it's actually really great the work that you're doing, um, and, you know, how you've adapted your work to COVID-19 as well. Um, so, yeah, thank you so much for this Madiha. And, um, you know, I really, really enjoyed this conversation with you. Uh, I think, you know, we got, I had lots of questions before I came into this discussion, but I think it was really organic. And I really liked the fact that, you know, um, you know, there was so much that that we were able to cover. Um, and I look forward to doing this again with you soon. Thank you so much, Manaha. Thank you for, for your questions and for the conversation. <laughs> Uh, Thank you so much for taking out the time and uh, we hope to stay in touch.